everybody. Welcome to the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. And we're asking the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're excited to be here again with you. We're recording this at a weird time. So like everything feels weird because we're like, I know there's daylight, the daylight, there's no thunderstorm. So, so that's good. No kids around. Well, yeah. you have one. I have one kid upstairs that I parked in front of the TV because yeah. we last. Deactivate. Yeah. We're like, here, watch Super Kitties. You'll be fine. So I came home from running from lunch and stuff. And I had this waiting on my porch, which for the viewers that at home can't see this, but it's the Skeptics Annotated Bible, which are Thanks, last. Caitlin. Yeah. Caitlin recommended. And I immediately ran to uh, Amazon to order it. And I forget how much this was. It was like 20 something bucks, but there's also like a really nice leather one that Caitlin had. And my immediate thought was I can't spend $50 on any Bible anymore. Even one that debunks itself. So yeah. So <laughs> kudos to Caitlin for having the sweet leather bound one. I just got the paper one because I'm a cheap skeptic apparently when it comes to yeah, Bibles. Yeah, you know? But um, what about you? Anything exciting going on besides your cat with the URI? Yeah. Actually, both of them have it. Oh, they um, should wear masks. Yeah. So uh, I adopted two kittens and they're super adorable. You don't have one in the closet you right now? like No, to- they're sleeping. Yeah, but they do have upper respiratory infections. It just seems like it's never ending. Yeah, it's like perpetual kennel cough, even though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I had to take my dog to the vet this week, too, because he had some kind of infection. He kept trying to, for lack of a, a better term, eat his own butt. And I'm Ew. like, what's going, what's going on back here? So, like, I'm I sorry, thought he, what? This is why I, I'm not a dog person. Yeah. Well, I thought he had like an anal gland thing or something going on because it's a pretty common thing with dogs. And um, so I brought him to the vet. They're like, oh, no, it looks like it's just some kind of infection or whatever. So they gave me some antibiotics. And is it oral to, or did you have to spread it yeah. on his butt? No, it's an oral. Uh, it's an oral <laughs> antibiotic and a steroid. And then I think I got some medicated shampoo. But I've had him coned up for like a week and a half, which is hilarious because oh, yeah. like dogs don't have any depth perception, apparently. And they're just he's bashing in. <laughs> things left and right with the cone on which is great i think i just took him out of the cone today and he's like oh yeah i can move my head is he feeling better yeah oh, the yeah the medicine made a, a big difference and good they did have to shave his whole back end because they wanted to like look at it and he was not a fan <laughs> of that. it was it was hilarious like four grown people holding this dog against the table so they could like <gasps> shave his hind area and Why he was is this like so funny to me and it was like really sensitive because of all he had like a bunch of like lesions back there from Ew, whatever was going that's on. Gross. But yeah, butt lesions. It was pretty please, disgusting. No. I'll, I'll pass on the butt lesions. Yeah, it's pretty gross. But so yeah, a lot of veterinary excitement excitement this week. So Ooh, which yeah. which doesn't in any way, shape, or form lead into this week's topic. Not at all. Not related at all. I mean, we are going to took a, talk about things that are kind of like full of shit, I guess. So maybe. Well, and there are donkeys and <laughs> they're animals. Yeah, there will be donkeys. So. So yeah, today we're going to try to tackle a very broad subject, um, the historical Jesus. And we wanted to kind of start with like a little disclaimer that neither of us are biblical scholars, even though I used to think I was one until I realized realized what biblical scholarship actually is, as opposed to like Christian scholarship, where you just circularly learn about things. Yeah. Our goal is to kind of talk about, I guess, a a couple of different questions. Like biblical scholars have been tackling the idea of the historical Jesus for centuries, I guess, like since since the early church fathers were around. So our goal for this is just to kind of spark your interest in the idea of finding out kind of how the Bible is put together. You know, what kind of person was Jesus? Did he really exist? So we're going to tackle a few questions. And I think that there's a lot of different areas and schools of thought. 
and people who do this kind of research. And so instead of us being experts, we're kind of like, like we're taking bits of information from all of these sources. And I think that what we're going to do is present this in kind of a simple, easy to understand way. So that way, if you're not even familiar with this topic at all, you'll be able to follow along and understand. And if you're well-versed, then you might learn something new anyway. Yeah. All right. So the first thing we want to talk about is, did the Jesus as recorded in the Gospels really exist as he de was described? And if he did exist like that, how do we know? Yeah. And keyword exist as described. Right. If you're going to believe the Bible and the biblical account of Jesus and the Gospels, because that's what your whole faith system is built on, it's kind of important to know if those stories are true, if it's based on reality, is there kind of historical corroboration to them? So the Gospels and the Bible are our main sources of information about Jesus in addition to Paul. Yeah. Um, Paul was the earliest, but he doesn't tell us that much about Jesus. It's really the Gospels where the bulk of the information comes from. Yeah. So I've been really fascinated with this. I, I mean, I, we've mentioned this several times, the Bart Ehrman podcast and several of his books, How Jesus Became God, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But in all the Bible study and stuff that I did as a Christian, I don't think I ever learned any of the stuff about how the Gospels were written. Maybe I knew when they were written. I didn't even know that. I feel like I knew the dates and I don't think I ever put together that, okay, if Mark was written in like 50 CE, that's 40 years after Jesus. Mm -hmm. So the gospels are really interesting. It's, it's kind of important to know that most scholars think that the gospels weren't even written by the people that the books are named after. So Matthew wasn't written by Matthew. Mark wasn't written by Mark. Luke wasn't written by Luke. <laughs> John might've been written by John, but there's some discussion if that John is the same John that was the disciple or if it's just some other John. The beloved disciple. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a whole school of study called pseudepigraphy, which is basically a fancy word for forgery. <laughs> and Bart Ehrman has a book about this, like were the gospels forged? So you can read that book if you want. And most Christians, I for one definitely thought that they were written by the, the disciple named Matthew and the disciple mm -hmm. named Mark. And that's church tradition. Yeah, absolutely. But the only evidence they can present for that is that his church tradition. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So a little, I guess, factual background is that Mark was the earliest gospel that was written. Um, and estimates put that at about 40 years after Jesus' death. That's still a long time. And yeah, it's still a long time. And most scholars think that Mark is the least inventive and the most factually reliable of all four gospels. Yeah. I mean, there's a possibility that people were around that yeah. could verify the stories that Mark told. Remember that none of these books were eyewitness accounts. So like, I always pictured that as, oh, well, here's Mark following Jesus around. He's just writing down these stories as he as he went. That's how it was kind of presented to me. Mm -hmm. And that's not actually remotely true. Like, right. So another thing that goes against them being eyewitness accounts is that, well, we know that Mark was the first and then Matthew and Luke are so similar that it's been widely accepted for 1500 years that they either copied each other or they copied from something else. Mm. We know that they used Mark as a source, but they also have stories that are unique to themselves. So Matthew has stories that are not found in Luke. Luke has stories that are not found in Matthew. And so they each have a separate source that they got information from. So when you think about these being eyewitness accounts, how could they have been eyewitness accounts if they are copying things from each other word for word sometimes? Yeah. And the thing you see when you read these other books is you see these similarities. They're very obvious and they're very clear. And then you'll see sometimes where the details will change a little bit. And then scholars will always ask, well, why was this change made? Yeah, why? Right. Th did the scribe who was, you know, writing this thing down, did he have a certain theological bent that he wanted to make a 
point. And so he changed a little bit of the story. So one of the big things you get from this kind of scholarship, even on this entry level, like we've been doing, is there's so much human interaction with these texts that we viewed as inerrant and, or I did anyway, that we viewed as holy, you really start to pick up how human the Bible is. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it would have necessarily affected my belief when I was deep in there, but it definitely would have made me think like, oh, there was a lot of man action <laughs> that made this happen. It wasn't all divine sitting down under a tree and God whispered yeah. this to them. That's kind of how I always imagined it, right? I thought it just dropped from the sky, right? Like as this one complete thing, but I never had any interest to really look into it more. No, me neither. And now I do. I, I think it's fascinating now, but back then I just like, I did not want to delve any deeper into religion than I had to. Right. Yeah. There's sources kind of for for Matthew and for Mark and for Luke, and they, they have real clever names like M and L. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, M for Matthew and L for Luke. And there's also Q, which is a separate, actually hypothetical document that contains a lot of the sayings of Jesus that are common in Matthew and Luke, but are not found in Mark. Yeah. And for very complicated reasons that I don't understand, scholars don't think that Matthew and Luke copied from each other. Mm -hmm. So then where do they get that information from? The hypothetical document Q. Yeah. And Q could have been simply a conglomeration of oral traditions or sayings that were circulating around at the time. Right. And this isn't like some fringe theory. This is actually one of the foundations of modern gospel scholarship. Right. So here's an example of what we were talking about before with Mark being the least inventive of the Gospels since it was the first one. And there were people conceivably alive who witnessed Jesus or knew his biographical details. So then in the later Gospels, there were no such people around because it was later. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> yeah. the Jewish scriptures said that the Messiah uh, would be born in Bethlehem, but in Mark, Jesus was born in Nazareth. And Mark doesn't offer any explanation or rationalization as to why there is a discrepancy between what he says and what's in the, the scriptures. Right. But then Matthew and Luke later do try to rationalize this away by making stuff up. In <laughs> right. Matthew, Jesus's parents are actually from Bethlehem, but they fled to Egypt. And then when they came back, it was too dangerous for them to go back to Bethlehem. So they settled in Nazareth. And then Luke said that they went to Bethlehem for a census and Mary gave birth there. So that's why he is actually from Bethlehem, even though he was Jesus of Nazareth. Right. So you can see this evolution of the story it started out a little, maybe a little more truthful. And then people maybe started wondering, well, why is the Messiah not from Bethlehem when that is what is foretold in the scriptures? And then Matthew and Luke had to come up with these rationalizations as to why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, actually, even though he was from Nazareth. It's kind of funny if you think about that theologically, too, because like the whole Christmas story is about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Yeah, it's but so But then weird. the whole rest of Jesus' life, it's like, oh, Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. And it's funny. I never thought about that contradiction either. Like, well, he was born in Bethlehem. So really, he was Jesus of Bethlehem, <laughs> if he was supposed to be. You know, Right. But, and the Messiah so, yeah. was supposed to come from Bethlehem. So... At, you know, kind of the point we're making that if these were eyewitness accounts, they wouldn't have been copied from each other. They, they're definitely not independently corroborated. And we're going to talk a little bit about the triumphal entry as a really good example of this. Mm, yeah. Okay. Are we doing that now? Yeah. So let's scroll down. Let's scroll down eight miles. <laughs> Oh my goodness. What page is it on? I don't know. It's way Wait. down there. Oh, here it is. Back up, is back up. <laughs> How do we have 12 pages? That's the crucifixion story. Oh, I went right by. Oh, here it is. No, oh, there it this is. This is so unprofessional. I found it. All right. Okay. Now, now that we scrolled through our really long document, 
we're going to talk about the triumphal entry. So the triumphal entry, for those of you who are not familiar with the story, is basically the the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, and you know, basically the people recognize him as the Messiah, and it's all supposed to be a fulfillment of some prophecy that the Messiah was going to ride in and all this kind of stuff. So let's talk a little bit about the historical context that was going on at that time. Okay, so Palestine and the Jews, they were under Roman rule at that time, but they were eager to be free, of course. And the triumphal entry to Jerusalem happened just before Passover. So this is a feast that happens every year, and it commemorates the freeing of the Jews from Egypt, uh, which is another thing that we know probably never happened, but that's right. not really relevant to this discussion. They think it happened. Uh, so it's part of their history and their culture. Right. And so during Passover, they're looking ahead to when God is going to free them again from Roman rule. And so lots of people came to Jerusalem for this feast, and oftentimes they got a little rowdy or overeager. So there was a huge Roman presence during these feasts. And the Roman governor, who was Pontius Pilate at the time, he would come to Jerusalem, even though he never came to Jerusalem. It was only during this feast that he ever came. And he came with heavy backup. <laughs> so that's the context that this is taking place in. And so Matthew and Mark, they both describe Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey or, or donkeys right. with crowds cheering. They're cheering that he's the Messiah. He's come to save them from their oppressors, right. who are the Romans who are standing right there watching Right. Yeah. And, it, and, and the way that story is described, you know, it's, there's throngs of people, you know, on this main strip in Jerusalem where he's coming in on his donkey or two donkeys, like one of them says, you know, and they're throwing their coats down and they're yelling Hosanna and all this kind of stuff. Now, let's just think about this logically for a second. <laughs> if you're the Roman freaking <laughs> legions that are probably there in town and there's a whole group of people crowning a person that's going to be the Messiah that's going to free them from their oppressors, do you think the Romans are going to really be like, like that sounds cool. Yeah, go right ahead. You know, they're golf clapping yes. and like grazing, and they think it's. I don't. I don't really feel like that's that doesn't it's not seem realistic. Like, not realistic. Like no, it's not. And um, Barnerman wrote a blog post about this. He says if the throngs were really proclaiming Jesus as the coming Messiah in his glorious and heralded entry into the city, how is it that he was not arrested on the spot and taken out of the way? precisely to prevent some kind of riot or mob uprising. I find it completely implausible. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's sometimes when I listen to Bart Ehrman, he always is really important to say, are we looking at this from like with our modern sensibilities or are we looking at it from like how the ancient world would have looked at it? So in I feel like in the ancient world, and the time when Roman Rome was dominating the world, they certainly would have would have not allowed this kind of celebration to happen. It would have been viewed as a riot. And it's the exact kind of thing that would have led to someone being crucified. And it was only one week before he was crucified, right? Right. So like you would have think that right then they would have snagged Jesus right off the street and been like, this guy is going right to the hill. Yeah. And then there's also, I like to call this the cherry on top. <laughs> That just really demonstrates how man-made this really is. And that this did not happen. I mean, Jesus might have entered Jerusalem, sure, but not in this manner. Right. I also have a blog post about this, and we'll link to it. Which has great artwork, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so the, proud of that artwork. The artwork is fantastic. It's this my masterpiece. Might actually, it's the masterpiece of my this life. This might have to be the cover artwork for the episode right here. Like, Yes. <laughs> this would be awesome. Great idea. Okay, so this is the short version. And for the long version, go read the blog post. There's a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and it reads, See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, comma, on a colt, comma, the foal of a donkey. Okay, so let's give a little refresher about the scriptures and how they were translated. Mm -hmm. 
So the Old Testament was originally in Hebrew and was translated into Greek in the Septuagint. And remember, if the New Testament Gospels were written based on real events, then no, none of the authors would have had to look back at the scriptures in order to write the New Testament. They would have just been writing about events that ha- were happening in real time. Right. So with that in mind, in the Hebrew scriptures, in this prophecy in Zechariah, there is a very small conjunction word that can mean and or but or or. And sometimes the meaning is so igni- insignificant that it's dropped entirely. Right. And in the Septuagint, This little word was translated as and, but in the Hebrew scriptures, this little word didn't have a meaning. There was Mm -hmm. no meaning implied. It was simply um, a connector between two lines of poetry. So the meaning in Hebrew was humble and mounted on a donkey, comma, on a colt, comma, the foal of a donkey. But then in the Septuagint, it is translated as humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, comma, the foal of a donkey. Mm. implying two separate donkeys. <laughs> but in Hebrew poetry, there's this thing called parallelism where an idea is restated uh, on two separate lines. And so if you're not familiar with Hebrew poetry, then you may interpret that as two separate ideas, not a restatement of the same idea. And the fact that this little conjunction word was translated as and really exacerbated that problem. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that ended up being the long version anyway. So now that we've laid that context, what we're getting at here is that Matthew, instead of writing about actual events that happened, being an eyewitness or talking to eyewitnesses, he just went back to the scriptures, read the prophecy and thought, hmm, how can I write this gospel to fulfill this prophecy? And that led him to write that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on two donkeys, <laughs> right. one being a full-grown donkey and the other one being a baby donkey. It's all the same donkey. It's all the same donkey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. How else would he come up with the idea for two donkeys if not for misinterpreting the scriptures? Yeah, which would be exactly the type of thing you would expect for a, for a person who is not well-versed in, you know. Yeah, in Hebrew poetry. Or, yeah, spoke Greek, didn't know Hebrew poetry, which would make sense because the other thing we I don't think we mentioned here, but like all these gospels weren't written in Jerusalem. They were written elsewhere around the ancient world where they spoke Greek, you know, and they were trying to, you know, use these translations and they weren't, and we don't even have the originals of them, obviously. Yeah. And like I said before, if he had been an eyewitness or he had talked to eyewitnesses, there's no way that he would have written it that way that Jesus rode in <laughs> on a donkey and on a colt. Right. <laughs> he's like wa- he's like water skiing in, like yeah. one. Like, one foot on each donkey, exactly. like, like a Red Bull event. Like. Yeah, I mean, this to me, like when I discovered this, it was kind of in the middle of my landslide out of Christianity. And I was like, oh, well, this seals it. Like, there's no way. Right. You can't just fulfill a prophecy just by reading what the prophecy is and then writing fan fiction. It doesn't right. work that way. The prophecy has to be written. Clear events have to happen that fulfill that prophecy. And then it's written down. I mean, even then there's a lot more things that need to be verified. But yeah. They got to be written ahead of time too. Like, and that's the other thing is like most of the things that are viewed as prophetic in the Bible were written after the events that they supposedly foretold. Mm -hmm, Like Daniel. Yeah. That's kind of how you modify the narrative when things don't happen the way you want them to happen. We'll talk about this when we talk about Jesus being an apocalyptic prophet who was thought the kingdom was going to come within his lifetime and then it didn't. So then, uh oh, how are we going to adapt the narrative? Oh, yeah. And that actually leads straight into the next point that I wanted to cover. 
which is a principle called theological inconvenience, uh, which is one reason that biblical historians actually think that the crucifixion probably happened because it was so theologically inconvenient, right? Mm -hmm. The Messiah was not supposed to die. He was supposed to be an earthly king that restored the Davidic kingdom, according to the Jews. And so this would have been a departure from expectations. So like you said, they had to rationalize backwards to explain it away. And so when you're looking at whether the Gospels are historically accurate, keeping this rule of theological inconvenience in mind, the more inconvenient something is, the more likely it is it probably happened. An example of this is that Jesus could not do miracles in his hometown, which is kind of weird. And it's like a weird thing to also include. So Mark, just like straight out says, he could not do miracles in his hometown. He could not. And then, of course, Matthew and Luke also take this little bit, but they like adjust it a little bit to make it seem like it's not Jesus's fault. And in the book called The Evolution of God by Robert Wright, he says that these failures, the failures to perform miracles, live on in gospels written later than Mark may mean that, as scholars have suggested, some of Jesus's failures became talking points for opponents of the Jesus movement and perhaps worked their way into a unified written critique that lived on for decades, end quote. So that might be why Matthew and Luke still had to include that little bit about uh, Jesus not being able to perform miracles in his hometown because people were still talking about that and it was still a skeptical talking point. So the other thing that is important to think about when you're talking about, you know, is the Jesus that's presented in the Gospels factual and historically accurate is Jesus being God. So there's none of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, none of those authors ever say that Jesus was God. John references that Jesus is God. But there's no real quotations where Jesus comes right out and says, I'm God. There's a lot of things that are real close or that can be kind of interpreted as in he means God. You know, if you're looking for that framework where Jesus is God, which is kind of the, the, the thing that John comes from, is it's a very kind of divine book, you know. But you would think that Matthew, Mark, and Luke would think it's pretty important to put in their in their story that Jesus said he was God, right? So Barterman says in another art, in a post that he wrote, he's like, the disciples didn't think that Jesus was God. They didn't even have an inkling of that. It wasn't even on their radar. That's something that happened after the fact. Um, and some of the things that Jesus said that lead to these God claims were things like, you know, he said in John 8:58, before Abraham was, I am. So people listening that knew the Jewish scriptures would know that I am is a reference to the God of the Old Testament, and they would be like, oh, see, he's claiming to be God. I am is, you know, one of the names of God in the Old Testament. So the Pharisees and the religious people that knew the Jewish Bible would know that he was claiming to be God there. And that's why they got all up in arms, you know, and, and later he says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But the question is, like, was this Jesus claiming to be God or was it something else? So Bart Ehrman has a blog about this <laughs> as well. Um, and he uses a term called metaphorical oneness. And it's kind of like, it's like saying, you're one with something, but you're not saying you are that thing. So like you hear people talk about their sports team and they'll say, oh, we really played badly today. Oh, yeah. Well, none of you were on the field, you know, so was Jesus using something like that when he says, I and the father are what I speak for God. It's like when you send an emissary ahead and say, hey, the president says this, mm-hmm. you know, clearly that person doesn't believe they're the president, but they're speaking for the president. So that's kind of like what metaphorical oneness is. So I, I, that's another thing. I don't think I would have ever really known 
noticed as a Christian, like there's so much stuff that we interpreted as Jesus being God. Yeah, we're taught that Jesus was God and there's like zero doubt ever, like in church talk and sermons and stuff. Right. And so when we read the gospels, we're just overlaying that knowledge onto the gospels and we're interpreting it in that way. But yeah, if you just strip away all that extra stuff that we've been taught and you just read the gospels for what they are, and even if you read each gospel independently from one another, it comes off as much different. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So the question then becomes, well, if Jesus didn't say he was God, if his disciples didn't think he was God, well, how did he become God? How'd that even yeah. happen? And when? Bart Ehrman wrote a whole book about this called uh, How Jesus Became God. So we're not going to regurgitate this whole book, but there's a lot of scholarship obviously involved in this. So we're going to kind of just try to talk about this a little bit. You know, the first thing to talk about when it comes to like how legends or how things like were processed in antiquity is oral tradition. So oral tradition is basically how stories were passed down, you know, around the ancient world and people told stories. And it's funny because one of the arguments against when they say that the oral tradition is a solid method of transmission they say well back then oral tradition was like the only thing they had so they made sure that it was good but <laughs> there's not really any basis to support that like no they're just saying that because there was no other way to transmit information because most people didn't read or write right. so things were oral and so the argument goes okay well since that's all they did they must have been better at it but they're still people just like we are i mean there's no difference psychologically between them and us they have the same tendencies to embellish and right. forget and have biases and agendas <laughs> right yeah i mean if anyone's ever played the game of telephone you know how easily it, how easy it is to misconstrue even the simplest of things i mean imagine trying to orally tell the story from one of the gospels like like the feeding of the 5000 or like any of those stories imagine just trying to recount that story accurately to someone else yeah and then it's a hundred times removed from you right you didn't see it originally you heard it from someone else you heard it a hundred people ago you heard it from someone else yeah it's crazy yeah oral tradition was kind of the how things were transmitted back then. So the, the likelihood of things being transmitted erroneously is pretty high. Yeah, and not even just erroneously, but I think that they had agendas and biases just like people do today. And so they might embellish the stories every time they tell them or they adjust the story to um, fit the person that they're talking to and so that the person will be more receptive to the story. And then that person is going to propagate the story down the line. Right. Yeah, you've got a target audience, like if you're trying to talk to, and it's funny because when I think back to how pastors talked about different of uh, the gospels, they would say, oh, well, Matthew was written to the Jews. And so you'll notice that a lot of the things reference Jewish culture and stuff that, and that's why it's not in Luke, who was written to the Greeks, you know, and then that, and so that all sounded good and it may have been true, like, mm -hmm. but, but it doesn't, <laughs> it's not like a reason for it to be, to demonstrate that no, it's true it's or not. that it's accurate, <laughs> you know, like it actually more supports the idea that you're gearing your stories, you know, to make sense for whatever audience you're talking to. So I think it's easy to forget that early Christianity was basically a sect of Judaism when it first started, you know, like, and it was all within that sphere of influence. And like we mentioned earlier, Jesus never claimed he was God in the first three gospels and none of the disciples ever saw that he was God. So Jesus didn't really become God until after his death and the stories of his resurrection, quote unquote, began to circulate around the ancient world. Yeah, so we start seeing the claims of Jesus being God in John, but not necessarily in the yeah. first three synoptic Gospels, right? Right. 
you don't see Jesus really being talked about as God until way later in Christianity, even though because the Gospels didn't talk about it. That wasn't the goal. The story of the resurrection may have been circulating about that time, and that's how it landed in the Gospels. But we don't really know the exact time frame of like, well, how did Jesus become God in that sphere of time, like the early church time? They started talking about it, and then it just kind of happened. They started because it wasn't the empty tomb that made people believe that Jesus was God. It was like the people that were coming back and saying that they had visions that they had seen him. So, I thought that was really interesting because like in Christianity, the empty tomb is the big thing. Like, oh, mm-hmm. they ran to the tomb and it was empty. That's enough to say, oh, well, he must have resurrected. But like Bart Ehrman and several other scholars will say, that's not the conclusion that you would jump to right away in the ancient world. For one, if a grave was empty, you would immediately think somebody stole it, <laughs> you know, which is what, which according to the gospels is right. why they posted a guard at the tomb. But Bart Ehrman goes even further to say that Jesus wouldn't even been buried in a private tomb like that. He would have been in a mass grave grave, you know, but the gospels say that Joseph of Arimathea came and took Jesus and put him in this private grave. But again, there's no source to verify that that actually happened. Oh, speaking of Joseph of Arimathea, I just read in this book, Seen Through Christianity by Bill Zersher, that Arimathea does not exist. The town uh, is not on any maps, current or historical. And the name Arimathea was broken down and proposed by Richard Carrier to mean the best disciple town. So he says, in contrast to Jesus's closest followers, nowhere to be seen, Joseph from the best disciple town bravely asks Pilate for the body and dutifully entombs it. At the same time, his first name, Joseph, is an implicit reproach to Jesus's quote unquote father, Joseph, who like the others is nowhere to be seen. Isn't that fascinating that Joseph of Arimathea, while also he serves a purpose in getting Jesus to a tomb instead of in a mass grave, but also his name is symbolic. So that was just a fun little sidebar. We can get back to our main topic. Yeah. So the other thing we have in here is talking about the difference between what Messiah would have meant to the Jews of that time and then what Messiah means to Christians now. They're two very different things. (laughs) Like, So the Jews thought the Messiah was going to be an earthly king and was going to set them free from their oppressors and would establish a new kingdom on earth. They did not expect that this Messiah would die. That that was not part of the plan. And there was also no requirement that the Messiah would be God. Right. Well, and if you think back to the to the Old Testament, they were talking about the Messiah all the way back then about escaping the oppression that they were experiencing then. And so that Messiah thing just kept getting, for lack of a better term, getting <laughs> kicked down the road. The can kept getting kicked down the road because they couldn't escape yeah. this oppression. <laughs> they were always we being oppressed. We couldn't escape the Babylonians. We couldn't escape the Assyrians. You know, so like then... When Jesus came on the scene, he was basically an apocalyptic preacher, was talking about the Messiah coming, you know, and like being um, rescued and freed from Roman oppression. So, and now look at it is now. <laughs> How are you looking at the Messiah from a Christian standpoint? Well, we're still looking ahead to another kingdom. We're going to get exactly you know, freed from this. Everything's being pushed ahead. This oppression of the world, and we're going to go to heaven and all that kind of stuff. So you can see how this starts to snowball into the idea of a person becoming a deity. So then, after Jesus became God, doesn't that pose a problem then for monotheism? Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like it creates a problem for Christians. Yeah. So if Christ is God and God is God, then don't we have two gods now? And then yeah. what about the Holy Spirit? Yeah, and you got the Father. And so then they're like, oh, crap, now we got three gods, but we're supposed to be monotheistic. So we have to invent something. And why don't we call it the Trinity? 
So they come up with this theology of the Trinity, which had been around. Actually, I thought it was much later where they kind of came with this, but the notes that I found said that it was the second century where that theology first kind of appeared. And they were mostly talking about Jesus and the Father. The Holy Spirit wasn't really on the radar quite yet. Mm -hmm. He was like more like the wisdom of God. And then in 381, there was a council, the Council of Constantinople, and that basically codified the whole thing and made the Trinity an actual like Christian doctrine. So that's where it was Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They exist three in one. And The fact that it was codified in 381 CE, that's like, what, 100? Sorry, I can't do math. That's 300 350 years, years after yeah. Jesus died. They're finally yeah. like, okay, this is how it is. I'm sorry. Why wasn't that made <laughs> extremely clear when Jesus was <laughs> right. alive and when the Bible, when the Gospels were written? Like, that's something that should have been made extremely clear. Yeah. Well, and they would say, oh, he did mention it up. He said, I and the Father are one, you know, but why would it take you 350 years to figure out what that means? Like, it's not a clear statement. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing I think that really was kind of the thing that made Jesus God was the, the resurrection story, you know, like did, if the resurrection happened like in history, well, then it would be an open and closed case, right? Here's a person who claimed to be God. They said that they were going to die. They said they were going to come back to life. Blah, well, blah. as Lars would say, even if the resurrection did happen, it doesn't mean that Jesus was God. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I guess is technically true. Yeah, not necessarily. But yeah, and as I was mentioning earlier, um, a lot of scholars were saying it wasn't the resurrection, the empty tomb wasn't the thing that led to belief. It was the visions that people were having. So then they were like, oh, this person saw Jesus. You know, So those things that are recounted in the gospel where he appeared in the upper room or where he appeared to those 500 people or you know all that kind of stuff, those were the stories that really fueled the idea of Jesus being God in that time frame. It was like, well, he came back from the dead. And the key word is stories. The 500 people, it bothers me so much because people call into atheist experience all the time and they're like, oh, but there were 500 witnesses that yeah, saw this. No. And it's like, no, somebody wrote down that 500 people saw it, but we don't have 500 accounts. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, so like to, to, I don't know, to like, like squish this down to like how Jesus became God, it's really just because people started saying it. And like they say now, if you say something long enough, people start to believe it. And then it turned into, a, it, which to me, like I'm saying that out loud, it sounds so stupid. Like the fact that you could come up with an idea like that and then have it spread around the world the way Christianity or any religion has is, it's a little bit mind boggling. Like, yeah, like, like let's say you wanted to start a, a story about like your cat being the princess of darkness. Like how much work would you have to do to make that yeah, spread around the world and like make it catch on? Which I guess is probably what apologists would say. Well, though that's how right. you know it's true. It's fueled by Jesus. Nobody would go to all that effort to do something that wasn't true. But you know, they didn't think it wasn't true. That's the other thing. Like they believed that those things happened. And then why would you not trust your neighbor who said, Hey, this happened? You know, so Yeah. And I think that it's a series of attributes of Christianity that make it likely to spread. And Constantine helps by making it the religion of Rome. Since right. Rome like conquered everything and spread, it, that's what spread too. And the fact that yeah. Christianity is evangelical and you're supposed to spread the word and convert people and there's a threat of hell if you don't and there's an eternal reward yeah. in heaven and see your loved ones again. I mean, it sounds great. Yeah, it sounds great. So to, to answer this kind of initial question that if, if the Jesus as presented in the Gospels existed the way he appears to be presented, that's something that is debated by scholars still and we're not going to like nail it down right here. But 
from my personal opinion, it doesn't look like it's based in historical accuracy. It's more based in theological belief. You want to believe mm-hmm. it's true, so you're going to believe it, you know, which is a common response when people are challenged on things that don't have any evidence. They say, well, I just believe it on faith, you know, so this is kind of no different. All right, let's move on to our, our second point, which is, are there any external sources that corroborate the stories that are recorded in the Gospels? Mm. This kind of follows up to what we were talking about. So I love this topic. Yeah, this is really, there's so much information on this. We're going to like barely scratch the scratch of this. Like, but See, that's the thing is like, there's really not that much information because there's not that many sources. There's not a ton. Yeah. So when we talk about contemporaneous sources, we're talking about sources that were written around the time that Jesus would have died. And so we're we're looking at within 100 years, so from 30 CE to 130 CE. And we're doing that to make sure that there is some possibility of it being historically accurate as opposed to oral tradition or hearsay. Right. Some of this information comes from um, a Bart Ehrman lecture. Uh, we really have to send him money for this. So I know. there's three types of sources. There's pagan sources, which are neither Jewish nor Christian. There's Jewish sources, And then there's non-canonical sources outside the Gospels. Yeah, we mentioned a couple of those non-canonical sources, um, which have been like the sources for the Gospels. And then, you know, lately there seems to be a lot of um, hype about the non-canonical Gospels, like the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas. You know, we'll talk about a little bit more of those. But to me, the pagan sources, like you would think that there would be a lot of talk about Jesus amongst the authors and and stuff of the day. The Roman culture was known for its record keeping, Mm -hmm. but there's really not a lot of sources in antiquity about Jesus. So I thought about this for a while, and then I was actually listening to yet another Bart Ehrman podcast, and he was saying, well, that's not really as damning of a point as like people want to make it. He goes, because there's actually other historical figures that are big in the time, like we mentioned Pontius Pilate, who are barely mentioned in, in antiquity either in sources. So he was mentioning that, like, is it important that there was other writings about it at the time? I We in modern society would say that it is, and mm-hmm. that's something that maybe we have to think about. Is it important if there were external pagan sources writing about Jesus? Well, I think that if it's the Jesus that was described in the Gospels, where like the curtain tore into and there was an earthquake and the sky darkened um, and then zombies came out of the ground and walked around. I mean, yeah, I would expect there to be sources for that, but maybe my (laughs) expectations are too high. And it's interesting that if Jesus had existed, but just been like an itinerant preacher that was barely noticed, then it makes sense that there was nothing written about him. Right. We're not saying that Jesus didn't exist because there are no pagan sources, but we're saying that it lessens the probability that Jesus existed as described in the Gospels. The reason that we would view this as important is because if if you're making extraordinary claims, then you need to have evidence to support those claims. Right. So you would think that there would be pagan sources that referenced who Jesus was, and there's really not a ton. But the earliest pagan source of Jesus comes from this early second century, and it was a scholar named Thallus or Thallos, and he was a Greek guy, maybe Samaritan, according to historians. But of course, his books were lost. He wrote a three-volume book, but it was quoted in another book. 
Yeah, and there's a paragraph about Thallus in the book Seen Through Christianity by Bill Zersher. So you're right. Th- we don't have any surviving surviving copies of the books that Thallus wrote. But this historian, Julius Africanus, in a book titled Chronography, talked about what Thallus wrote. So this is what Julius Africanus was writing. On the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness... Thallus, in the third book of his history, calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun, end quote. And what the author of this book, Seen Through Christianity, goes on to say is that very little is known of Thallus, the timing of his writing or his sources. He might simply have been repeating beliefs readily found within the Gospels. After all, a supernatural darkness in the middle of the day would have been noticed by others besides Christians and Thallus, but it is mentioned nowhere in Seneca's Natural Questions, circa 65 CE, a book devoted to scientific reporting, or in Pliny the Elder's Encyclopedia, Natural History, circa 80 CE, or in Ptolemy's Algamest, circa 150 CE, a book devoted to astronomy. So not really telling us anything that we didn't already know from the Gospels. That's a pretty long time after Jesus, too. Even that's the earliest mention. Yeah, so it's not known when Thallus lived exactly, but it's sometime between 50 CE and 180 CE. And Julius Africanus quoted him in 220 CE. So that's one reference. What's another one? Okay. There was a reference by Pliny the Younger, who was the Roman governor of the province of Bithynia. Is that how you say it? Sounds good. Okay, so he was writing letters to his emperor Trajan. Trajan? Trajan, yeah. Trajan. So he mentions Jesus in 112 CE. And so this guy, Pliny, he was having problems with a group of Christians meeting illegally in his province. And you weren't allowed to meet in groups because the Roman governor was paranoid about things like that. Uprisings. Uprisings, yeah. So he was basically writing to the emperor asking, what should I do about this? Should I let them meet? And he goes on to describe the Christians. He says, the Christians were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. Right. But what does this actually tell us? Because the name Jesus doesn't actually even appear here. It just says a hymn to Christ as to a God. Right. And he's not saying Christ was a God. He's just saying they believed Christ to be a God. Right. <laughs> Yeah, nothing nothing new there. They don't and they don't even mention Jesus's name. So another pagan source that we have is from Tacitus who wrote the annals the annals? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's annals, two ends. Annals. The annals of Rome sounds pretty hilarious, but that's probably a different book. <laughs> Much different book. <laughs> so yeah. he was born in 56 CE, which is after Jesus died, and he describes an incident that happened 50 years earlier under Emperor Nero. Nero wanted to rebuild a city in his own architectural style. And in order for that to happen, the city needs to, you know, you need to get rid of the city, start over. This is what allegedly happened. He set some fires. People Mm. began to catch on that he was doing it. And so they started accusing him. And to save face, he shifted the blame to Christians who were already despised. (laughs) He had them gathered up and executed, sadly. And Tacitus describes the Christians like this. Christus, or Christus, I'm not sure from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, end quote. That's all it says. So we still don't have Jesus's name here. And the reference is not accurate because Pontius Pilate was not a procurator. He he was a prefect. Yeah, prefect or governor. Yeah. Another interesting thing from the book seen through Christianity is Tacitus was likely not quoting Roman records because had they existed, they would have used the individual's name, Jesus, rather than a theological title given to him by his followers, Messiah slash Christ. He was probably repeating information he had heard secondhand. So what does this tell us? It tells us nothing. And 
yeah the more i the more i think about this like if you were a person that that did the things that jesus did like they would have circulated around and people would have been talking about it and people would have especially the romans would have written about it like they had meticulous record keeping you know if someone's walking on water or feeding five thousand people with like you know five loaves and two fishes that's gonna get around it's the zombies that does it for me (laughs) it's like somebody should have written about the zombies besides matthew right yeah somebody would definitely write about the zombies all right let's talk about jewish sources because these are the ones that I always heard as a Christian, especially yeah. our first one is Josephus, you know, who wrote this really big volume um, called Antiquities or something like that, or Jewish Antiquities. Mm-hmm. And in those 20 volumes, our best Jewish source about Jesus gets how many mentions? Two. <laughs> Two in 20 volumes. And like, I don't know how big a volume is, but like, I'm sure they were pretty big. Yeah, they're pretty big. Uh, but the interesting thing is that he actually wrote about a lot of people named Jesus because it was such a common name. Right. And he actually wrote a lot more about some of those other Jesus people (laughs) instead of our Jesus. So I think that's interesting how insignificant this mention actually is. So the first one was in book 20. Well, I guess the first one was book 18, but we're going to talk about book 20 (laughs) first. It says that Jesus was called by some people the Messiah and had a brother named James. And that's all it says. I mean, that's not the exact quote. That's like paraphrasing. So what does this tell us? Not big news. It's like all stuff that was in, well, in the New Testament, Jesus, did he have a brother? I thought it was James and John were brothers. Um, yeah, I'm not So this sure. would be some new information potentially that Jesus had a brother, you know, but but there are other sources that I th- that said that Jesus had siblings, you know, but. Yeah, I think Paul maybe said. Also, Josephus was born in 37 CE, so he never even met Jesus no. or was around when he died. Uh, but there may have been overlap in people that were around at the time, so he could have talked to people who were around. Right. Yeah, and then in his other volume in Book 18, it says, At this time there lived a Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one such performing surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. Greeks. He was the Christ, and when, upon accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. So this is very hotly debated, isn't it? Yeah. This reference makes it sound like Josephus was a believer. Yeah. But he was a non-believing Jew. So like, what's going on here? Yeah, like, why would he even say such a thing? Like, if you were not a believer in Jesus, why would you say he's the Christ and believe that he resurrected from the dead? And that's what Christians would say. Well, that's why. That's how you know it's true, because this guy wasn't a Christian. He said that he rose from the dead. Like, Except, 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 here's the thing. He was a traitor to the Jews, and so they did not want to maintain the manuscripts of these books. So the Christians did it instead. Mm. So they had access, opportunity, and motive to write whatever the hell they wanted in this passage. And most scholars, I mean, even Christian scholars, a lot of them admit that this is an interpolation by Christian scribes. Yeah, remember that big word we said at the beginning, pseudepigraphy? So they attributed, Josephus wrote those books, but we don't have the original books. We got copies of the copies of the copies, and Mm -hmm. they could have easily been changed over time. And it's funny because in Christian circles, whenever they reference Josephus, no pastor that I've ever sat under has ever told me what Josephus said. They just said, oh, when there was corroboration that Jesus did all these things, and Josephus was a writer at the time that wrote about it. But then it stops right there. They don't, no pastor ever told me anything further. Than yeah, that. well, of course they wouldn't tell you the whole story. So basically, 
even amongst Jewish writings, there's not really any corroborating evidence. There's some guy named Jesus that got crucified, but we don't really know what Jesus that was because apparently it was a common name. So the last source is the uh, non-canonical gospels and those other sources, which you mentioned earlier, like M and L and Q and all that stuff. But there's recently been a lot of discoveries you know, in the past, like within the past hundred years or so, they found documents um, that they're calling gospels or non-canonical gospels, like the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Peter. And Bart Ehrman talks a lot about these two and how they're kind of useful as references to learn about how the other gospels were written. But the majority of mainstream Christianity doesn't accept these writings as accurate about the life of Jesus because they, they paint a picture of Jesus that it's not real pretty, you know, like it's not, it's not a good picture. You know, and so they try to use like scholarship to dismiss them and say, well, we don't have the originals of those gospels, so they can't be trusted. But they're kind of forgetting that we don't have the originals of the Christian gospels either. So they're kind of shooting themselves in, oh, yeah, shooting good themselves point. in the foot as a way to kind of disprove those gospels. But Yeah, and there's some weird stuff in those. Some real weird there's stuff. There's like a talking cross in the Gospel of Thomas. Yeah, I think that's in Thomas the Talking Cross. There's a lot of wild, mythical-type stuff that happens in those books. But I mean, bottom line, there's no reason to trust these as historical any more than any of the other ones. Right, right, exactly. And then we also have Paul, who is extra-canonical, although he's not extra-biblical. He is (laughs) extra-gospel. So, but Paul doesn't tell us really all that much. And keep in mind, Paul wrote earlier than the Gospels. So, from Paul... We know that Jesus was born of a woman, okay, as opposed to what? A cow? (laughs) Right, a goat. Jesus was Jewish. He was born under the law. Jesus had brothers. Oh, there we go. One was James. That's how we know. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, Paul said that. Jesus had 12 disciples. Jesus ministered to the Jews. Paul presented two teachings of Jesus. Followers should not get divorced and they should pay their ministers. Jesus had a last supper. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was crucified. And we already knew all of this from the Gospels. Yeah, Paul was around before, I think even before the Gospels were written. So you would have think that you would have think that his writings would have had a whole bunch of sto- talk about Jesus, but there's nothing really in the Pauline book that specifically tells stories about Jesus, you know, like and and most of the books that are attributed to Paul about half of them, most scholars don't think he even wrote. There's like seven that are right. that scholars agree that were written were written by him. But like you would think someone that was actually a contemporary in the time period that Jesus would have been around, if you're going to write books and letters to people, you would tell actual stories, you know, about Jesus that you heard or saw. Yeah. And maybe that supports the idea that these oral traditions just had not developed yet. Yeah, it's a possibility. He was too early, I guess. So the last thing we want to talk about is, did the historical Jesus exist? Like, as in, was there a prophet or a preacher who walked the earth around 3 CE, had a ministry, got crucified, etc.? So there's a couple different schools of thought about this. Mythicism is one of them where it's basically just that Jesus was like a myth. I mean, most scholars kind of dismiss this as an idea, but there's a lot of people that were like, oh, Jesus wasn't real. It was just a myth from other gods. And it's pretty fringy. Yeah. I actually find the second school of thought on this, the apocalypse preacher school of thought about Jesus existence as like making a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense to me that Jesus was an apocalyptic preacher, which apocalypticism was a thing that appeared kind of before Jesus's time, like I think 30 or 40 years in Judaism, where it was all about like the end of the world coming, right. you know? So a lot of the prophets and stuff sort of adopted this idea of the end of the world. So Jesus coming onto the scene would have kind of fallen into that mold. And it also makes sense what where if Jesus is talking about the coming kingdom, 
him and then he died, then all of a sudden they had to adapt their whole belief system to say, okay, Jesus died, but he's going to come back again. And that's where you get the whole second coming. You're like that. So that's where you get the Messiah school of thought is like, well, Jesus was gone. There was no kingdom. We've got to shift everything to like a spiritual kingdom, you know, and that has now perpetuated, you know, we just passed a, uh, you know, another failed rapture prediction because he was supposed to come on what, September 22nd. (laughs) So going back to that, what you just said about how Jesus wasn't supposed to die, uh, but then he did, and then like, oh no, what do we do now? Um, This is from the book, The Evolution of God, and this is in chapter 10. He points out that just like when the Jews went back to the Old Testament and kind of recast it so that it looked like they were always monotheistic, they covered up their polytheism, Jesus' followers and the early Christians did the same thing with their scriptures. They kind of went back and made it seem like the pre-crucifixion belief matched the post-crucifixion belief, but really the post-crucifixion belief was new. It wasn't always that way. Right. Yeah. I was just reading something very similar to that in what that book that you recommended, uh, mm-hmm. The Seeing Through Christianity. And they were talking about original sin and how original sin didn't exist until way, way later. And they basically had to backfill right. all the details all the way back to Adam and Eve to say, this is where original sin started. You know, they just worked backwards from what exactly. was going on at the time. And that's a very similar thing. And to back that up, here's some evidence. So we already talked about how Mark was the earliest and least inventive of the Gospels. And Mark, when Jesus was crucified, he shouts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's like, WTF, guys, like this was not part of the plan. I wasn't supposed to die. But then 10 years later, when Luke is written, we've got 10 more years of oral tradition trying to account for this. And his last words were, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And then in John, his last words were, it is finished. Right. And John is more about the the divinity of Jesus. So it has to be like, this was the plan the whole time. Right. Yeah. And this always bothered me as a Christian reading in Mark when he's asking, why did, have you forsaken me? I don't understand why he's asking that to God. They're First of all, they're the same person. Right. Why is he saying that? It's the plan. And now this makes sense. This explanation makes sense. Right. So let me ask you a question. Does this matter to you? Do you care personally? Does it matter to you? Does it impact your life at all? No, it it doesn't now, but I guess as a believer, I probably would have, because that's the whole, the whole premise of the belief system is that he was a real person that walked the planet. Well, and that he did the miracles and and that he did all the stuff. Like, so I think that most like Christian people would say that the historical Jesus existing is proof that the biblical Jesus existed, which of course is, it's not, that's, that's a does not equal right there. False equivocation. So for me personally, I know there's like a huge debate going on right now, like Richard Carrier, Bart Ehrman, and Myth Vision and, and yeah, about yeah. whether Jesus existed. And, and people actually get in fights on Facebook about this. And I'm just right. like, why does this matter? Either way, right. <laughs> I don't believe it. I'm not going to be a Christian if there was proof that Jesus existed because you still have to take a whole nother leap to say that Jesus was right. God and Jesus did the miracles and all that. I think it matters to people who believe, and I guess it matters to scholars because you're trying to validate all the time and effort that you put into researching such a topic, you know, and it would really suck if you study this for 50 years and then you found out, oh shit, it wasn't even real. Yeah. There's a YouTube series called Excavating the Empty Tomb uh-huh. by Truth Surge. I've watched that one. It was really good. And I watched it uh, again, right on my way out of Christianity. And yeah. after that, I was like, oh, well, there's no way Jesus existed. That seals the deal for me. <laughs> But now I've learned a lot more since then, and it's interesting how once you gain a little more knowledge, you're not as convinced by some arguments as you may have been before when you were a little more ignorant. That's not to say that maybe that scenario isn't true. I don't know if it is or isn't. Yeah. I just 
know that when I watched that, I was super convinced that he never existed. And now I'm like, oh, maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. I don't care. Another thing I wanted to mention is that we do reference Bart Ehrman a lot. And there were a few other authors that we referenced, um, one of them being Robert Wright and the other being Bill Zersher. One thing that's been on my mind lately is how do you know if the person or the source that you're getting your information from has a bias? Yes. And I talked to Phil and Lars about this last night. Yeah. You asked the question and then just disappeared while me and Lars yeah. just yammered back and forth at each other. We're like, where did Susie go? Sorry. She asked I know. the I, question. I, I was putting my kids came back in was like with a thumbs up and then she's like, it's bedtime. <laughs> it was pretty funny. So my question is, how do you identify if the person you're using as a subject matter expert has a bias that is influencing their work? The consensus that we came to is that while nobody is without bias, a good researcher knows and acknowledges their biases and then works to present their findings without allowing their bias to influence the data. My follow-up question to that was, but then what if the person or the source does not recognize that they have a, a bias? Right. So Lars says, if someone espouses an idea outside their expertise or is um, unsupported by evidence or leans on weak arguments, that's a sign of bias. And it made me think of that we talked about science versus pseudoscience back in one of our episodes from season one. And I think that's a really good thing to keep in mind when, yeah. you're, when you're consulting these sources. You know, is the person open to criticism? Do they change their mind based on evidence? Or if they have an agenda, like, because like, I guess some people could listen to this podcast and say, well, these two have an agenda of disproving that Jesus existed. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. But we know that. And so yeah. we are trying to look at the the data and we're trying to look at the stories and the thing and say, okay, well, where is the where is the evidence that disproves my bias or uh, shows me something different? And I think that's right. the difference is like when you know that you have a bias, it makes it a lot easier to recognize that bias and then to say, okay, I have to work extra hard to make sure that I'm not speaking from the place of the bias. Right. And I can tell you that when I'm researching this stuff and I'm reading something that's like anti-Christian, that's not the right word, but like, you know, secular, I'm always going over to like got questions or I'm Googling like, what is the Christian response to this? Because not only do I want to know how to formulate an argument against it, but I want to see if the argument has merit. I don't want to just look at one side and make up my mind already. I mean, that's just confirmation. That's confirmation bias going the other way. Like we used to have confirmation bias for Christianity, and now we want to make sure we don't have confirmation bias against Christianity, like towards atheism. And that's also why we're referencing other scholars that this is their life's work. Like mm -hmm. I can't pretend to know like one iota really about what we talked about today. Yeah, like, me neither. Art Ehrman and and Zersher and um the, the other guy, I forgot his last name. Uh, Robert Wright. And another thing to point out about Bart Ehrman especially is none of the work that he's done in scholarship about the New Testament was the reason that he didn't mm -hmm. believe in God and faith anymore. Like he and he'll say that over and over again, like none of this stuff is what made me walk away, you know, which I think is is kind of fascinating in general because for if it was me, <laughs> I feel like I would have come across like some of those contradictions my first year in seminary and been like, what the fuck is this? And been like, I'm out. You I know. know, but he was so passionate about learning about it that he just kept digging and digging and digging. And it was something completely unrelated that had him exit Christianity. So yeah, and Bart Ehrman doesn't have any of these red flags that we look for in a researcher with bias. One of the red flags is resistance to correction. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that in Bart. 
In one of the podcasts I listened to of his, it was one about does scholarship destroy faith? And he said multiple times, he's like, I don't care if people deconvert. Mm -hmm. I don't care if people are Christian. Mm -hmm. I don't care if people are atheist. I'm just presenting facts and you can do with it what you want. And if you want to be a Christian, I'm fine with that. It's not my goal to deconvert people. Right. But I think it's also important when you find someone to then also find a counterpoint to that person. Mm -hmm. Both of these people are experts in the field. What do they both say about yeah. it? And then try to aggregate that together. I think that's um, an important thing to do. Just yeah. you know, part of critical thinking. Right. And always critically think. Don't trust so much in one source like Bart Ehrman that he becomes like your new Bible. Right. Exactly. That's what we want to avoid. Trust but verify. Yeah. There has to be a reason to trust, but also verify. Yeah. Someone asked me, actually, a person we may have on the podcast, they're like, hey, so are you like uh, an evangelist for atheism now? And I was like, no, absolutely Ugh, not. Gross. Was like, it was actually a valid question coming from this person because I know kind of where he was coming from. But I, I basically said, no, I'm actually not an evangelist for atheism, but I am an evangelist for critical thinking. Yeah. My goal is not for people not to believe in God. If you want to believe in God, that's fine as long as you're not mm -hmm. hurting people or you know whatever. But I want people to get to the place of being able to look at a situation and critically think not just religion things in general evaluate what you see on the tv you know in the political arena these skills are transferable you know across multiple domains So let's kind of try to wrap this up. I mean, I don't know. There's so much scholarship about it and there's a lot of, there's books and books and, and podcasts and videos and, and we haven't even like touched on all the details that are out there, but I would definitely encourage people to check out the resources that are out there, especially about how the Bible was put together and like how the gospels were written and all that stuff. Cause that stuff is just, it, to me, it's just so fascinating. Like it's all stuff that I had never learned <laughs> ever as a Christian. Yeah. I think the general impression is that most historians and scholars agree that the historical Jesus did exist on some level. But the more you learn about how the New Testament was written and how Christianity spread through the ancient world, the main thing. I've started to realize, and you may agree, is that you, it's just not plausible that the Jesus in the, the Bible existed the way he supposedly existed. Absolutely not. 100%. The, the legend became fantastical. It spread thanks to Constantine. And then the more you read about this, which I think I said at the very beginning, is you realize that Christianity is just a, it's a man-made religion, just like any other religion. Yeah. You know, stories get created. They get embellished. They get retold over the centuries. They get new meanings for the teller and to the listener. And now they're part of culture. They're part of tradition. So the question I would encourage people to ask is like, if you want to be an evidence-based person, do you want to live your life and base your decisions based on legend and fantasy or based on evidence? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. Tune in next time where we will continue to tackle the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? Be sure to join us on our Facebook group, Dangerous Questions, and follow us at flawedtheologypodcast.com. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Rate and review the podcast on Google, Spotify, Apple. Those uh, reviews are really cool and we like to hear from them. So until next time, keep asking the dangerous questions. See you next time. Catch you on the flippy floppy. And he actually wrote a lot more about some of those other Jesus people. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, my cat. Instead of our Jesus. So I think that's interesting how insignificant. <laughs> He's so cute. 
how insignificant this mention actually is. For lack of a better segue, like Slim Shady says, we need the real Jesus to please stand up. Nice.